0: Yeah, appreciate that, Rob. Yeah, so as Rob said, my name is uh, Jericho. I'm one of the pastors over at Cornerstone Church. If you guys don't think about Cornerstone Church, we are uh, in Ames, Iowa. We have partnered with Rob and uh, Doxa here to send him out here to Madison and uh, man, bring the gospel to this city. Uh, Cornerstone and Doxa were part of this network called the Salt Network. And what the Salt Network does is it identifies major collegiate uh, cities in America, and we focus on those campuses, and we come there and we plant churches, man, to see the gospel go forth. We prioritize the next generation, uh, and, our, and our hope is that in a four-year period, uh, we have college students who are raised up, who are uh, firm in their faith, who have a foundation rooted in Jesus Christ, and who leave the campus uh, following hard after Christ as they go into their occupations and raise families. And so, uh, Rob, man, he was kind enough to give me the opportunity to come here and, and uh, uh, share his pulpit with me, and I'm, and I'm super excited about that. Uh, and so, I'm from, I'm not originally from Iowa, I'm from Kansas City primarily. Kansas City played basketball my whole entire life, uh, got an opportunity to play college basketball at the University of Iowa. Uh, if you can't say go Iowa, say go Big Ten, right? <laughs> and so, So I've actually got a chance to come up here to Wisconsin and play in the Kohl Center. Uh, And you guys, uh, you have the bragging rights in that as I, in my four-year tenure, I never actually beat Wisconsin. So Uh, congratulations, guys. Um, But yeah, so I went to the University of Iowa. I uh, met my wife there. It was phenomenal. I was uh, about three years in. My wife comes in as a freshman. Um, And the ironic thing is that, yo, she's from Ames, and so if you don't know the landscape of Iowa, there's uh, Iowa State University, and then there's the University of Iowa, right? (laughs) And so she's from Ames, where Iowa State University is, and they have this amazing picture, right? She's sitting right here, uh, right next to her sister, and they have this family portrait from years ago where Trisha commits to the University of Iowa from being a lifelong Iowa State Cyclone fan. And she's sitting there all cute with her new little Iowa Hawkeye shirt on, and her whole family's just sitting around with all this Cyclone gear, just giving her the meme, uh, you know, just, who is is this? Who raised this girl? Um, But I have been the beneficiary of that. So um, we have a picture here we can show you of my family. So if you can't see her sitting really cute over there, you can see her even cuter on the screen. Um, this is me, this big ogre over here on your guys' right. And then my lovely wife, Trisha. And these are our three baby girls. Um, love them dearly. My oldest is five. Her name is Kata. Uh, my middle child, her name is Riley. She is four. And my youngest, she's a little over a year and a half now. Uh, her name is Maya. And we are excited to be uh, actually expecting a fourth child. And we are pregnant, very pregnant, eight weeks away. And so uh, our our first baby boy is going to be joining us, so we can give it up for that one, right? Yeah, yeah. so I was telling somebody earlier today that uh, in our family, you know, we don't break molds, right? My wife is one of five, and, uh, well, one of seven, but one of five biological, and uh, all her siblings bring the boys to the party, and we bring all the girls to the party, <laughs> and so we're the first ones that get to break that mold and actually bring uh, something different, and so we're really excited about that. So enough about me. So we're going to jump in here. So I've been keeping up with you guys going through this series in Genesis uh, and where we're going to be at today is going to be in Genesis 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out. Uh, Find me there and we'll be talking about the Tower of Babel. And if you've been here, if you've been watching online, the live stream, you have been trekking through this book and you're starting to get a glimpse of who God is and who he desires, what he desires for uh, his creation. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you guys went through this and you got the story of creation culminating in God creating man and woman in his own image. And then three chapters in, we get the fall uh, where Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And if we're, if we're, you know, honest, the Bible should have just ended right there, right? But we get a whole grand narrative. Not only that, but God was so gracious to actually let us be a part of that family as well, as you'll see in, in chapter 12. Um, And so, in Genesis 1 and 2, you get the story of creation, man and woman, the fall in chapter 3, and you get humans doing what humans do best. What do we do? We fail, right? We grow discontent at best, and we take matters into our own hands. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll soon see that this is actually a, a reoccurring theme for the characters in the Scriptures. And when we talk about the Bible, we can talk about the Bible in terms of narratives and, and stories, right? I was an English major at Iowa, so I love a good story. I like, and I was an athlete, right? So I didn't really take all the, the good classes. I took like classes I could pass so I could <laughs> stay eligible, right? And so I literally took every acting class I could take. I was, you know, uh, basic one, basic two, intermediate one. And I just kept doing it. Uh, I was doing it to get the easy grade, but I soon found myself like actually loving going to acting class. Honestly, uh, and it taught me a lot, right? In, in, my, in my English major mind, and so when I read the scripture, it comes super natural for me to pinpoint narratives, for me to pinpoint uh, stories, for me to look at the beginning, the rising action, the climax, falling action, denouement, all that kind of stuff, right? And so the, the the Bible is full of all of those things, and when the stories are broken down. You can actually see that stuff play out in even just the creation story in itself. There's a beginning, there's a climax, there's an end. Uh, With Adam and Eve, there's a beginning, climax, and an end. With uh, Jesus' life, there's a beginning, climax, and an end. But I think we do ourselves really well whenever we get to look at the grand narrative of the entire scriptures, and we get those stories, and we put them all into groups, and there's four basic ones that we get to. when we look at the Bible, we get the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. We get the fall that begins in Genesis 3. Redemption begins in Genesis 12 with the covenant with Abraham. And then we get restoration after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he begins to uh, reclaim all things for himself, making all things new. But the thing is, we can be tempted to understand the creation of fall story as being confined into three chapters. but It actually stems all the way to where we find ourselves in the study today, all the way to Genesis 11. The fall doesn't begin and end in chapter 3, but it actually follows us all the way to Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations. So I've been asked today to talk about a specific topic, to talk about uh, sin and idolatry. You guys have been doing this. You guys had sin and judgment. Right, you guys did marriage and talked about how sin works its way in that. You guys actually got two sermons on marriage. Wow, how would you guys sit through that? <laughs> but here we are, and I'm going to be talking about sin and idolatry. And so when I say the word idolatry, I want to ask you guys this question. What comes to mind? What comes to your mind? If you're like me, a couple of things may come to mind, but, but uh, if you're thinking in terms of the scriptures, the scriptures often give us a picture of idolatry as specific worship of an image or a, scri- a sculpture or architecture or even a lowercase g, God. And what this can often do when we stay in that mindset, it can often lead us uh, to think that we don't have any idols here in our 21st century uh, lives and especially not in our beloved America but most of us know that that's not true and we can actually find ourselves bowing down to these cultural idols, can't we? Like idols of power and money and status uh, and sex and and fame. And those ones, a lot of us may be willing and ready to call idols, right? But what about some of these others that may be idols like uh, marriage and childbearing and education, and meritocracy, also known as the American dream. (laughs) Just succeeding, doing well. Those things can also be idols. An idol can be something tangible or it can be an idea. It is whatever takes up residence in our hearts and dethrones God as the one whom we serve and who stirs up our greatest affections. And so as I talk about idolatry today, I actually don't wanna zoom in and talk about them in terms of, hey, this is, this is actually how idolatry manifests in my life. But what I really wanna do is uh, zoom out really high, take like 30,000 feet look at this idea of idolatry. And as we look at it, uh, I wanna look at not so much the effects of idol worship, that is you know, what it looks like in our lives, but more so the cause of it. And when we think of that cause, of idol worship, and as we'll see in the Babel narrative, the root of giving ourselves over to idol worship is first giving ourselves over to ourselves. If you have a pen, I want you to write write that down. The root of giving ourselves over to idol worship is first giving ourselves over to ourselves. And to put it another way, idolatry is not primarily the thing that we worship The thing that's got a hold on our lives. That's not primarily what idolatry is. Idolatry is firstly and fundamentally self-worship. And I want you to keep this in mind as I begin to read in Genesis 11. I'm going to start in verse 1 here. Uh, Go down to verse 9. I'm going to spend the most of uh, the time here. In Genesis 11, it starts like this. Uh, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them so come let us go down and confuse their language and they will not understand each other so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city that is why it is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world to play on words from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let me pray. Father, we want to uh, hear from your word this morning. Open our ears as we are washed with your word and move us through holy conviction. Spirit, guide my tongue and fix it to speak the truth. Whatever is from you, God, uh, let it stick on whatever is not. Let it go away. I pray this in your mighty son's Jesus name. Amen. And so as I Think about this passion. I think about developing this sermon. Uh, I wanted to title this sermon uh, Idol Worship is Self Worship. Okay, Idol Worship is Self Worship. And the question I wanted to ask the text is this How do we know if we're giving ourselves over to idolatry? How do we know if we're giving ourselves over to uh, idol worship? So I came up with three ideas. I want to give you these up front, and then we're going to walk through them for uh, the next 20 to 25 minutes here. Uh, The first one is that uh, we know that we're giving ourselves to idolatry when we move further and further away from God. The second one is we know we're giving ourselves to idolatry when we become self-absorbed. We try to make a name for ourselves, and we'll see that for sure in this uh, uh, narrative at Babel. And the third one is this. Uh, We know we're giving ourselves, starting to give ourselves over to idolatry when we grow weary with our faith journey. So, one, we move further and further away from God. This is how we know that we're beginning to give ourselves over to idolatry. Verse 1, look at that again. It says, now the whole world had one language and one common speech, literally one lip, right, and one vocabulary. As people moved eastward and they found a plain of Shinar and they settled there. So, if we look at this verse, I want to, or this passage, I want to focus on this word "eastward" here. Okay, in this ancient literature, in the Bible in particular, you will hear this uh, this going east come up multiple times, and you've already heard it multiple times before now, right? In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned and took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, that sin. Was met with a curse, and that curse, we get those curses listed, but then not only that, but they get banished from the garden. And where does God send them? East of Eden. And then we get Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are conceived, and Cain does what? He kills Abel, and the punishment for Cain is what? To go east. So when we see this, this east, this going eastward come up into the scriptures, what we're seeing is a representation that says, hey, these people disobey. These people are actually wandering. These people are going away from God. They are operating in disobedience, not obedience to the Lord of the universe. Going east represents a disobedience to God. And so we see in in, in Genesis in in that uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden, God gives Adam and Eve a commission. To do what? To be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue that thing, right? And they begin to do so. They sin, they get kicked out, uh, and God redoes this commission with uh, Noah's offspring, or with Noah in chapter 9. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And in chapter 10, we get the table of nations, and we get all of Noah's descendants, of his sons, And they're sparsing out when we get these different nations. And these nations uh, represent the nations that will soon surround Israel, who God will make his covenant with, whom Israel is to be the light to. But after the flood, when God gave Noah's sons the recommission to be fruitful and multiply, the problem came when the nations decided, no, I'm not going to go we're not going to do that God said be fruitful multiply the nation said no and this means that we find ourselves in opposition to God when we find ourselves in contradiction to what he wants us to do and when we find ourselves in contradiction to what he wants us to do we find ourselves outside of the will of God I have a uh, five-year-old daughter. You saw her up on the screen there. Um, She's an amazing child. Uh, But one thing you guys know about five-year-olds, especially if you you have a five-year-old going on 15, (laughs) right, Uh, they tend to want to do their own thing at times, right? And so I remember uh, a couple weeks back, uh, my wife was uh, with her sisters hanging out. I was at home with the three girls by myself. We were going to hop in the car. We had some errands to run. Um, I got my five-year-old. I said, hey, go get your shoes and meet me at the back door and we'll get ready to go in the car and we'll leave. And so I get myself ready, I'm expecting her to get her shoes on, we're heading to the door and I'm walking by, down the hallway by her room, get to the back door and I don't see her putting her shoes on, right? She's supposed to be by the door. I turn back, I go back by her room, she's actually in her room. And her room was a mess before now, but her room is actually spotless. And so the thing is, it's not that she didn't do something good. It's not that she wasn't doing something where I would say, hey, this is this is actually a, a good I love that your room was clean. Yes, she should clean her room, but should she clean her room now? No, she should have been getting her shoes on. And this is kind of how we act, and this is how the, the people in Babel were. It's not that they were building this tower, it's not that they were building this city. It's that they were doing so in disobedience to God. This leads me to my second point. We become self-absorbed. This is how we know we're giving ourselves over to idolatry. We end up trying to make a name for ourselves. Look at verses 3. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. And this is a very telling passage. You see, it's not when we tend to think of civilizations that are progressing in success and technology, we tend to think that society is doing well. It's not that Babel wasn't doing well to the perceivable eye. They were doing very well. In fact, that was their very goal. They were, it says, they tell us in in, in verse 3, they used brick instead of stone. Stone would have been a common material to use in that time, but they were well-equipped to fashion actually brick, oven-fired brick, which would have used gas to burn that and make it into brick to build the city, to build the tower. They were an ingenuitive people. (laughs) They weren't. Barbaric, they weren't this, this 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 group of people where we would walk by and say, Hey, we don't want to be like them. Actually, we would say, This is where we want to go. We want to be Babel. That was the kind of place this was. And that was their intention. Come, let us, come, let us, come, let us build ourselves a city. And I love what it says here at the end of verse 4. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. We get a glimpse into the heart of the people of Babel here who actually know they're operating in disobedience to God, and and, and they announce that, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, we, uh, it takes a little bit more to get us to be that honest, right, but that's the truth of the matter. We find ourselves doing the same thing that the people in Babel do, but we never get to the end of that verse four where we say, well, yeah, you know, verbally, publicly, that I don't wanna do it because God told me to do it. We never get there, but this is exactly what we're doing. This desire to make a name for yourself, this this is actually a theme. If you remember back to the Cain and Abel story again, after Cain kills Abel and he sent east, uh, he arrives and he builds this first city and he names the city after his son Enoch which ironically means hidden from God's face which was exactly Cain's punishment uh, for the rest of his life and then in Genesis 4 we get Cain's genealogy and this genealogy actually gives us a very talented a very hardworking, a very prosperous people A very prosperous people. The narrative leads to this God named Lamech where he represents the end product of a society like this. A society that inevitably has no room for the God of creation and the garden or the demands that God has for his people in terms of what he meant for us to exercise power under his authority. In Genesis 4, 23-24, it says this, Lamech says to his wives with an S, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. These are the kind of people that are being constructed in this land of Enoch. Can't you just hear the ridiculous amount of uh, self-worship in that? Listen, this is a direct quote from Lamech, and what he's actually saying is, listen to this. It's Lamech speaking about Lamech, literally in the third person. (laughs) Listen, young ladies, um, if you're dating a guy and he starts to speak about himself in the third person, like Lamech is speaking about himself in the third person, leave. (laughs) Simple, 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 okay? (laughs) Referring to himself in the third person. He's speaking to his two wives, boasting about killing two men. What this is is a blatant perversion and distortion of what God meant for his people, and more specifically, a major perversion of right relationship, man to woman, one to another. And a major perversion of justice. A major perversion of justice. For being harmed, I kill. For crossing into my property, I kill. For coming into my home, I kill. We give ourselves freely over to the mindset to use unequal force when I feel infringed upon. This is something that Lamech boasts about that. Does that sound familiar? And in Genesis 6, we get the same thing with the sons of God and the daughters of man, and the sons of God come down from heaven, and they uh, find these uh, sons of, or these daughters of men. And what they do is they take whoever they want. They take how many they want, and they create this society. They create this society that's like Enoch, but like on, steroids right Uh, it's be equivalent to Las Vegas in the summertime in Amsterdam right you come together and they have a baby and you get what the society would have been like okay image in image out image in image out so God saw this type of evil and he saw that it was rooted in self worship and idolization and he decides enough is enough and Moses records here in this account that God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Every creature. And then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness. And because of them, and we know what happens after that, the flood. So here's the thing, church. The most misleading thing that we could do today is to look at these uh, chapters chapter 4 chapter 6 chapter 11 in Genesis and say oh that's just something that happened back then that's ancient that has nothing to do with me because we know that that's not true I know that there may be people in here right now and even maybe some watching on the live stream that have actually been recipients and contributors to this type of evil rooted in self idolization Here's the thing, y'all, idolizing ourselves and our fleshly desires leads to dethroning God. It leads to crowning ourselves as Lord over creation instead of stewards over creation. And to put this plainly, self-worship leads to disobedience to God. And this is the problem with the Tower of Babel and this is the problem with us. So i want to break down this intent at Babel, three things. They wanted to build themselves a city. They wanted to build themselves a tower, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. The first thing, they wanted to build themselves a tower, a city, excuse me. And scholars debate who actually inhabited this city, right? This early settlement in Shinar, this, this settlement in Shinar would become Babel, which would become Babylon uh, later on. And we know what the Bible thinks of Babylon. And so we get some insight in chapter 10 from the table of nations who may have journeyed over to this land and settled here. And it would be the sons of Canaan, right? Uh, The grandsons of Noah, Cush, and the great grandson Nimrod, who would have founded this place. And we'll be doing well to think that this city was not necessarily inhabited by one people group, but was inhabited by multiple of the people groups. It's not commonly agreed on, on like exactly how maybe this was maybe sooner after the flood or, or, or maybe sometime in between the dispersion from the table of nations in chapter 10. But we know for sure that it wasn't just one evil conglomerate that said, hey, yeah, this is going to be the spot, but not. It was, a, it was a multitude of people. And we know this because we also get a glimpse uh, later on in chapter 11 where uh, we get abram's lineage that doesn't come from canaan who we know went to Sharonar, but it comes from shem who god will use to bring us abraham who god would use to bring us jesus and it was that lineage it was them who also came out of babel and so we have to see this the issue here wasn't the city in and of itself it was that the city it was what the city represented ask this question what did god want uh, the nations to do God wanted the nations to scatter, but what did the nations want to do? The nations wanted to gather. God said, Look, no, go, and the nations said, no, nah, we're not going to go. And when they said no, they were rejecting God's authority, and in order to deny God and his authority, they had to accept something else as Lord. And the same thing is true for us. In order to deny God, in order to deny God and what he says and commands for our lives, we have to accept something else. And that something else is not the thing that ends up becoming the thing that controls us, that gets our affections. No, that thing is firstly us. It was them. Their selves got in the way. What they wanted was this thing that was a perception of unity, but it was not a nod to unity. It was disobedience. The second thing they wanted to do was build a tower. And so you look at this tower, and from their reading, you could get that this tower may have been a skyscraper, but the tower wasn't necessarily a skyscraper how we would think of skyscrapers, and that time period may be. But if you've ever been to New York City, or maybe even... Let, Even Madison, if you go downtown Madison and uh, you look up and you break your neck to see a couple of those buildings down there, those buildings who supersede 250 feet for sure, they would have been taller than than this tower that would have been here in Babel. It wasn't a very big building. To our eye, it would have been unimpressive. This building would have been a ziggurat And these ziggurats were common in the ancient Near East and would have been erected all over Mesopotamia. And the ziggurat was built as a place where the people thought God would come down and dwell with them. And you couldn't really actually go into them, but they would build this structure as like a staircase. You could go one after the other. You could climb it up and there would be a place where God would come down and dwell. There would be a place for rest. There'd be a place for food. And and he would come there. And so the sin at Babel was uh, not that they built this tower It was that they were seeing God in their own human terms. They were seeing Him as someone who actually needed something from them. Do we ever operate in that way? Do we operate? Do we offer God something and saying that God, you, you, you need me to do this. You need this from me. When we put ourselves in that position, we are putting ourselves in a wrongful position. The sin here at Babel is not the tower, but thinking that God is like humans and is in need and can be served by us. In Acts 17, 24 through 25, Luke gives this account of Paul giving his Areopagus address on Mars Hill. And I love this passage of Scripture. And in this portion of the passage of Scripture, he says this to the Greeks, "...the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands." nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He is the giver. We are the receiver. We can offer God nothing of value. (laughs) He offers all completely freely to us. He is and has everything, and so this tower, it didn't create a dynamic that actually worshiped God, it created a dynamic that worshiped themselves. It was something that said, hey, we don't want heaven to storm earth, we want us as earth to storm heaven. It was made to glorify man, not God. So the third thing is they wanted to build a name for themselves so some of you guys in here you have uh you've got teenagers or maybe preteens right and i want to share a a story uh this story is one of the stories that my sister and i actually agree on uh, in full detail (laughs) Uh, from our childhood Uh, she was about 12 years old i was about 10 years old and you know we were in the home and we were thinking you know our parents are treating us poorly we can't do this we can't do that right and we want to go and do something else completely. If you're 10 or 12 years old in this building, I don't condone this, okay? And so we put our little 10-year-old and 12-year-old minds together. We sat down, got out a piece of paper, we drew out the neighborhood, and we were like, yo, yeah, we have an idea. Let's let's run away. (laughs) Let's run away. We don't like being here under this rule. We want to do our own thing. We want to go see what else is out there. And so what we did was we, we, we did this thing. We said, hey, we'll go here. Maybe we'll stay here for a little while. We'll see this person and that person. Then we'll go to the store. Maybe we'll come back. And the parents will never know we left, all this kind of stuff. We didn't take into account that uh, we were being disobedient. We just had in front of us what we wanted to do, right? And so we packed our little bags. We go out of the house. We walk down the street. And I know you guys will not know how the story ends. We don't actually get very far, <laughs> okay? We get like four houses down. And then we go to this house, our friend's house, and who's actually a good friend with our mom. And so she lets us in, and she's sitting there talking to us. And she's like, hey, what are you guys doing? And we're like, nothing. <laughs> you know? And she's like, okay, you know, go down, sit down, and, and watch TV. So we go down and sit down and watch TV. Uh, she hops on the phone. About an hour later, she yells down the stairs and says, hey, Jasmine and Jerry, your mom, wants you to come home. Right? And so our whole running away escapade lasted a whole, like, hour maybe two at most okay and i tell that story maybe it was a long drawn out possibly unnecessary story (laughs) but to say you know that that maybe it's not running away from home as a preteen but maybe it's something else uh, surely in our lives where we have or are attempting to say to god listen i'll wear your name on the front of my jersey so long as it's in fine print it's out of the way maybe up in the corner and maybe gray even so it blends in with the fabric you know so long as I get to wear my name on the back in big broad bold letters in calligraphy mind you right this is kind of what we're doing this is what me and my sister did we say yeah we don't want to be a part of this anymore we want to do something different And if you're like me, you've had a moment like this at some point in your life where you said, yo, I want to take this into my own hands. But let me ask you a question. That's not how God will have it, will you? That's not how we'll have it. Does who gets their way in that scenario? Is it you or is it God? It's God. All the time? (laughs) Yeah. Every time. Every single time. But the thing is, you know, the people at Babylon, even we, we want God to be on the contract, but we want Him to be on the contract as a co signer, right? We want God to be in the car, but we want Him to be in the car as a passenger. We want God to be in our lives, but only as that cheerleader that says, hey, yeah, let's, let's go, go ahead, I'm right behind you. We want that kind of God. We want to be blessed and used by God mightily, but only in our own agenda. And this is the crux of it all. This is the crux of the fall. This is the crux of being human. And so in verse 5, check that out with me real quick. Uh, God's response to this. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. To be clear, God was not surprised. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. He's not saying in this narrative, this people is almighty and all powerful and all they can ever imagine they can do. Whether it's true or not, maybe the people at Babel could do a lot of really good things. Hey, America America's pretty good. (laughs) We can do a lot of good things. We are not outside the will of God. But what he was saying is, yo, I've seen this before. (laughs) I saw this in the garden. I saw this. In the exile from the garden, I saw this in the city of Enoch. I saw this with the uh, with the sons of God and the daughters of men. I've seen this, and so he says, "I do not want this for my people." And so he comes to take a look at the tower, and he says, "Yo, get out of here." Verses eight and nine. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused their language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. This scattering wasn't an act of anger. This scattering, yes, may be an act of judgment. But it was also an act of grace. Do we see the hand of God? In our lives that way, do we see it as an act of grace or do we see it as a nuisance, a type of interruption? Those are our two options, y'all. God will get his way. We'll either see it as an interruption and we'll go our own way, idolize ourselves, self worship, or we'll see it as grace and do what God says, and this decision will happen time and time and time again. Uh, I want to draw a parallel here um, from the scattering of the people to the ultimate hope of unity. The people in Babel thought that they actually had this, this idea of unity. Right? They were building things, they were doing well, they were creating uh, 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 new material to actually build their city with. Right? They were on the forefront of innovation. Right, But that's not what God sees as unity. There was really this pressing element in this story. Right? On one hand, you can look at this story and see that they uh, have a wealth of unity. There's a people that comes together, one language, one vocabulary, and they agreed on what to do, and they began to do what they agreed on to do. The city, the tower, the name. And by any measure of unity and success, they appear to be unified and succeeding. So why the scattering? Because God knew that this unity was not a true unity, but a truncated version of unity. And in fact, it was no unity at all. It was simply uniformity what god desired in his command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was not a sense of uniformity but rather a sense of diversity to god there is no unity without diversity even in his own essence the father the son and the holy spirit three in one one person three different functions unity and diversity This unity requires difference. Why? Because there is no pride in unity across differences. It's all, it's, it's self, it lends itself to self-sacrificial living. If I want someone to do well who's different than me, there's a humility involved. If you want someone to do well who's different than you, there's a humility involved that's a requirement. In 1986, uh, Bill Hybels, uh, some of you guys may know this name, and uh, if you hear that name, your ears may perk up, right? In in recent years, he's had a, a scandal of some sorts, and he has a moral failure. I don't want to delegitimize this moral failure, but here I want to highlight um, uh, some of his success, okay? That's relevant to unity. Bill Hybels, he began to champion a philosophy of ministry called the Church Growth Movement at Willow Creek Church. And this movement was modeled after a movement called the uh, Homogeneous Unit Principle. And he didn't create this homogeneous unit principle, but he adopted it. Donald McGavern created the homogeneous unit principle, and Donald McGavern was a missionary in India. And what he found out was that, yo, if you delete all the barriers for a society, any barrier it takes for them to be with another group of people, if you delete them all, right, culture, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all that kind of stuff, people will come together more often They will come together in bigger groups, and they will come to know Christ easier and quicker. The homogeneous unit principle. And from the outside looking in, you could see that, and you could say, that that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. (laughs) So did the people of Babel. It's the same concept. And so what... Bill Hybels did throughout his time building this ministry is he ended up looking at target groups, and he said, yo, if I create a target group and I cater to this target group, preferably someone who's like me, a target group that's like me, because I know what they want, I can build something that's gonna be desirable for them, and they'll come, and they'll be here. This is what he was doing. In more recent years, he grew convicted about this model. And there's this book called Gaining by Losing. J.D. Greer, who is the president of the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, he wrote this book. And in the book, he has this chapter on racial reconciliation. And if you don't have the book, that chapter makes it worth the price itself. So go get it, okay? Check it out. Um, And in this chapter, he talks about this time where he actually had a chance to talk to Bill Hybels. And he asked Bill Hybels this question. He says, because Bill Hybels, he's a champion, Willow Creek, 25,000 people on a weekend, 25,000. Who wouldn't want it? He asked Bill if he could change anything about Willow Creek, what would he change? He said this, I would make multi-ethnicity a value from the beginning. I would make multi-ethnicity a value from the beginning. And so J.D., he's, he's, he's obviously struck by this, right? J.D. himself is a young leader, dynamic pastor, getting himself started. And he's like, yo, I'm still thinking in the mind of target audience. Who can I get? This, okay, that one, boom, go, boom, big, come to church, come to Christ, boom. It's all good. So he's struck by this, hearing it from the champion of that. And so he says this. He said, even if you knew that you would not be able to build Willow Creek as big as you built it, you would do it? And he said, absolutely. And JD says, and here's the question that we all have (laughs) you would be willing to uh, convert less people to Christ? in order to have a church, that's a statement of diversity. And Bill Hybels responded with this. The corporate witness of the multi-ethnic church in America would be more powerful than any number surge in any one congregation. And so you gotta ask yourself, <laughs> Is that true? And wh- why? How did he get there? I think the answer is in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, 20 through 23. The high and priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying in this uh, prayer before he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be handed over to the Roman authorities and therefore taken and, and, and crucified. And he's praying, and he prays his prayer. He says, I pray not only for these, his disciples right here around him, but also for those who believe in me through their word, which would be the church to come in the text, and us as well. And he prays this. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me i have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one i am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me and not only that but when we look at the early church in acts It wasn't until the on-looking world saw the multi-ethnic church in Antioch of Jews and Gentiles did they start being called Christians. It wasn't a name that evolved from their church. It was a name that was put on them by on-looking people saying, yo, there's no reason why Jared should be teaching that doctrine." Except for Christ. Except for Christ. And they said, yo, them dudes are, they they some Christians, (laughs) y'all. It was was an insult. It was an insult. Y'all are Christians. Nobody else is doing that. I don't want to do that. I want to be with my Jews. want to be with their Jewish friends. Gentiles want to be with their Gentile friends. Rob doesn't want to share his pulpit with Jared. (laughs) But we're Christians, so what does that mean? Um, the unity and diversity is often a tag onto our faith, and we look at it as something you know, we can either take it or leave it. We tend to operate as if it's a a a a a, a matter of methodology. Rather than a matter of theology. And this ought not be. It should be foundational to our faith. So, for sake of time, I'm going to jump to my third point. We grow weary. This is the third way that we know that we are uh, becoming idol worshipers. We grow weary with our faith journey. And this takes us to the back half of chapter 11, and there's a genealogy here that starts in uh, verse 10, that goes into to 32, and I'm not going to go through the whole genealogy, but what I want to do is I want you to come with me and look at verse 31 here, okay? Um, There are some really cool parallels between this genealogy and the table of nations in chapter 10, and so when you get some free time, go ahead and do that. And I know you won't, but (laughs) that's something I would do. I'm a nerd. I kind of know that I like like that. Okay? But I want to draw your attention to verse 31. And this is after God scattered the nations. And we're introduced to this man named Terah, who was the father of uh, soon-to-be Abraham, who we know was the father of our faith. And it says this, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson, Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abraham's wife. And they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans, which was in or actually near Babel, to go to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And it says that Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. This is actually a tragedy. (laughs) It's representative of a faith walk, our faith walk, Tara's faith walk, to get the vision, the call, the voice, to go all the way to Canaan. And when he grabs his family, he grabs his things and he's fully convinced that this is where he's supposed to go. God wants him to go here and do this. He embarks on that journey know, on that journey, there's undoubtedly some things that come his way, and, and he's doubting and thinking and trying to do things and trying to manage, and he comes to Haran. And instead of continuing his journey, he grows weary and he stays here. Now, as I conclude this message, I wanna ask the worship team to come up. When we think about this reality of terah and Abram, this is how the narrative of the fall ends, the beginning of the fall in Genesis 3 with the uh, eating from the tree of knowledge and the evil, all the way to the scattering of Babel. It ends here and is ironically reminiscent of how we can grow weary and comfortable in our faith and settle in places and with things that God never intended for us. The very next chapter begins The next act in the narrative, creation, fall, redemption. With Abram, he will strike a covenant. He will change his name, Abraham, to be the father of many nations. He will make a covenant with him. He will create a new people who will create a people, a, a chosen people, who will be the light of the world, who will be called Israel who was to do his will. Along that lineage, we will get the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Terra to Abraham. Abraham, he won't live a perfect life and he will wrestle with idols and sin and temptations of his own. And he will fail at times, but in contrast to the civilization in Babel, he will choose to walk in faith. So church, we're gonna take communion today. Uh, After I get done praying, uh, we're gonna worship a little bit and Rob is gonna come up here and and take us through that. But before that happens, what I wanna do is I want to prepare our hearts to receive this communion. The body of Christ, his sacrificial, Blood and all it means for us as believers in the body of Christ, wherever you are right now, I want you guys to just take this time, close your eyes, um, bow your heads, you on the live screen, live stream, bow your heads as well, close your eyes. And here's what I want us to do, I want us to meditate, I want us to think. Think about the ways that we are tempted to let the idols just run wild in our lives. The way that we look to ourselves for our own appeasement. The way we want to uh, pursue immediate gratification. The ways that we want to do our own thing, deny God, be disobedient, and erect ourselves on the altar of salvation. Church, we can't save ourselves. There's a Savior for that. So I don't know where you are today, but I do know a God who gives more grace. If you came here this morning and you didn't know Christ and you confess that you have been following a lie and want to repent and begin the new life that Christ has for you, seek a neighbor someone you came with, a friend, someone you're sitting on the couch with right now. Come see me after the service. Some see Rob, Ronnie, Amelie, somebody. We'll walk you through it. If you profess Christ and you have wandered away, however far away, and you're not sure how you'll find your way back, hear the Father's voice today say this, turn to me, turn to me, and do it, turn to him, the Father is good, he's loving and he's merciful, Father, receive these words of your people that are pouring out to you right now, receive these prayers, receive them with a sweet, sweet, sweet aroma, I pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen.